Angie has made it easier than ever to hire high-quality pros to get all your home service jobs done well. Just bring them your project online or with the Angie app, answer a few questions, and Angie will connect you with local pros who match your specific needs. Or book a service instantly at an upfront price. So join the millions of homeowners who use Angie to care for their homes and get your next home service job done well. Download the free Angie mobile app today or visit Angie.com. That's A-N-G-I dot com. Good evening, everyone. I'm John King in tonight for Allison Camerata. Welcome to CNN Tonight. Debt ceiling drama. We're getting closer to a debt ceiling deal. Closer, but we are not there yet. And the fact that Janet Yellen essentially gave them four more days means, well, we've got a ways to go. Even if they make a deal tomorrow morning, can they get it done in time? Plus, can a Trump-like candidate beat Donald Trump? That's the question as Ron DeSantis gets his campaign in high gear. The Florida governor not being shy at all about taking on the former president, ripping him on the border of all things, calling him a big spender, and blasting his COVID policies. I don't know what happened to Donald Trump. This is a different guy today than when he was running in 2015 and 2016. And I think uh, I think the direction that he's going with his campaign is the wrong direction. No other Republican in the Trump era has been able to walk that tightrope. The question is, can Ron DeSantis? And here's a sobering thought this Memorial Day weekend. Whenever you go in the water, you are, get this, never more than 200 to 300 feet away from a shark at any time. Jeff Corwin here with us tonight to tell you what you need to know. But we begin with the debt ceiling negotiations, getting down to the wire as lawmakers in the White House race the clock now to try to prevent a first ever default. Today, Treasury Secretary Janet Yellen buying them a little more time, writing, quote, based on the most recent available data, we now estimate the Treasury will have insufficient resources to satisfy the government's obligations if Congress has not raised or suspended the debt limit by June 5th. The Treasury previously expected to run out of money as early as June 1st. And despite growing pressure, listen, President Biden sounds optimistic about reaching a deal. Things are looking good, and very optimistic. I hope we'll have some clearer evidence tonight before the clock strikes 12 that we have a deal. But it's very close, and I'm optimistic. Negotiation going on, I'm hopeful. We'll know by tonight whether we are going to be able to have a deal. Joining me to talk through this, our CNN Capitol Hill reporter, Melanie Zanona, University of Michigan professor of economics and public policy, Justin Wolfers, and former Republican Congressman Joe Walsh, former Democratic Congressman Max Rose. Mel, let's start with you up on Capitol Hill. The president says we're close. He believes even it could come by the tick of midnight tonight. Republicans say close, waiting on some things from the White House. Where are we really? Well, I don't know if we're going to expect a deal tonight, but it is certainly close. We're hearing from Republicans here on Capitol Hill that they are indeed inching closer to a deal and that it could come as soon as this weekend. Congressman Patrick McHenry, he's been a rather pessimistic voice actually throughout this process, and he actually sounded the most hopeful I have heard him throughout this process. I want you to take a listen to what he told me just moments ago. I would concur. Everybody wants to look for the white smoke. Yes. We're not at that stage yet. So you have to have, you have, to have an agreement, an agreement on the agreement, which is like the complicated part. You all know waiting around for 
um, you know, the final bit of agreements is the, is the hardest, longest wait. That is a hopeful sign to me, and I've rarely used that term in the last 12 days that I've been involved in this. So the hopeful sign that the president is, is saying those things tells me his White House team you know, might be in a, in, a, in a better disposition than what we've seen in previous days. Now, Patrick McHenry also warned there, as you could hear, that this is still a very laborious process because even if and when they do come up with a deal, they have to still turn it into legislative text. Then they have to get what's known as an official score from the Congressional Budget Office. And then they have to give members 72 hours to read the bill. And then, John, comes the hard part, which is actually passing this thing on the House floor. Even a deal that is blessed by Biden and McCarthy does not necessarily have the votes. They're going to have to whip both of their parties. There's going to be people on the left and the right that are upset with the deal and the compromises that emerge. So they're going to have to both put up votes in order to get this over the finish line. And then when that happens, it still has to go over to the Senate, where any single senator can hold things up. And we're already hearing from Congressman Mike Lee, a conservative, who said he's willing to use every tool at his disposal to slow things down if he doesn't like what he sees. So it's still a long way to go. They do have a little bit more breathing room now that the X date is officially June 5th. But they are more hopeful as they get closer and closer to a deal, John. All right, Mel, stay with us. Let's walk through with our great group here, both the politics and the substance. The substance first. Uh, Justin Wolfers to you. Uh, Janet Yellen in her statement tonight trying to explain that she says, you got a few more days, so, ladies and gentlemen, but she says, we will make more than $130 billion of scheduled payments in the first two days of June, including payments to veterans and Social Security and Medicare recipients. These payments will leave Treasury with an extremely low level of resources. There have been uh, some Republicans in Congress, uh, former President Trump himself at the CNN town hall a week or so ago, uh, saying, don't buy it, don't believe it. It would not be that much of a calamity. It's okay. Is it okay? No. <laughs> um, look, the truth is none of us know, because the only way we'd know is by looking at past debt ceiling defaults. And thankfully, we've never done that in the past. But let me give you an educated guess. If we uh, were to default, then folks don't want to lend to us. How much? Um, I don't know, maybe they'd raise the interest rate by 1%. We owe $31 trillion. 1% of that is what, $300 billion. There are 300 million Americans. That's $1,000 each that we'd each be paying in extra interest every year if we default, and that's before we talk about a recession. So if this interest, higher interest hits us for another 10 years, each of your viewers is on the hook to pay another $10,000 in interest on our government debt. So let's bring the two former congressmen into the conversation. Uh, Congressman Walsh, to you first. Uh, Janet Yellen gives the negotiators four more days, essentially, which, again, in most, if it was a business negotiation, a contract negotiation, you'd say, great, we got a little bit more time. This is complicated to work it out. In Washington, is that a good thing or a bad thing? Because, as you know from your own experience, the longer this is on the vine, the more everybody either complains about something they know is in it or comes up with an idea to put something new in it. And John, it's probably not a good thing because, you know, politicians only react to the deadline and they wait until the last moment. Look, we, we always dance this dance. And I was there when we last danced it in 2011. Uh, they're going to craft a deal. They've probably already crafted the deal. And some on the right won't like it and some on the left won't like it. And it'll mostly be passed by the majority of Democrats and Republicans. And that'll give McCarthy enough cover, I think that he can say he tried, 
But at the end of the day, there's going to be unhappiness on both the far right and the far left with whatever deal this is. If you do, Congressman Rose, if you do for what we know right now, the framework they have, and again, it's a Washington cliche, but it happens to be true. Uh, there's no deal until there's a total deal. So nothing is agreed to until everything yeah. is agreed to. But we know it would raise uh, the debt ceiling for two years. Uh, it gets you through the presidential election, which I think the Democrats want probably more than the Republicans, but everybody will be happy with. Uh, it would cap federal spending, not significantly cut, but at least cap federal spending. They're stuck up on the length of those spending caps, on whether there would be work requirements for food stamps, other social safety net programs, uh, and the details of permitting reform? Will it be just for fossil fuels or will it be for green energy as well? Let me ask you, Congressman Rose, about the work requirements, because uh, both Republicans and Democrats say it's a red line. Republicans say it's a red line for them. They won't vote for it if it's not in there. And a lot of progressives are furious saying, Mr. President, don't you dare. Uh, How does the outline sound to you? To me, it looks like a traditional old school Republican deal. Everybody gives a little and gets a little. But do we live in traditional times? Well, look, I'm not certain what the Democrats are getting in this deal, other than the fact that they are avoiding economic calamity here at a point where they control two thirds of the government. Despite that fact, uh, they are seeing reduced government spending. And that, that is not merely just a number here. This goes back to the signature or one of the signature legislative achievements of uh, this administration, which was the 2023 budget, which saw unprecedented and vitally important increases in social service spending. But nonetheless, in a divided government, there will be compromises. There is a reason why, though, the work requirements are the last thing that is being agreed upon, because both sides care very passionately about this issue. It is personally shocking to me that the Republicans have even successfully inserted this into the dialogue because it is not a fiscal issue. This may be an ideological issue, one that people are passionate about, but the economic implications about it uh, are slim compared to the other issues that we are talking about. So certainly if, and it's a gigantic if, if the Republicans are able to successfully slip in a significant work requirement restriction into this final compromise, I would sincerely hope that the Democrats get something equally substantive in return. Otherwise, what we're going to see is, uh, you know, something small that is just meant to try to move on to another day. Uh, Melanie Zanona, if we get a traditional deal, the left doesn't like some things. The right doesn't like some things. In traditional times, it gets passed. Everybody grasses a bit, but it gets passed and we move on. Uh, but again, we don't live in traditional times. How many votes can Kevin McCarthy afford to lose and not be challenged, not have his speakership, his hold on that job challenged? Well, in terms of how many votes he can lose, that obviously depends on how many votes Democrats are going to put up. So the math is obviously so key here. But the question of his speakership is a great question because during the race for the speaker's gavel, he gave his critics this tool, this power to force him out at any given moment. And he made a number of other promises as well, including that he would fight for fiscal 2022 spending levels. And so it is certainly a possibility that if he agrees to something that falls short of what conservatives are expecting, that he could be threatened. His speakership could be on the line here. Now, do I expect the Freedom Caucus to vote for whatever deal comes out? No, they typically do not vote for these really big compromise deals. They don't usually vote for spending deals. So it's possible that they could just swallow their, you know, swallow this deal, uh, vote against it, say they don't like it, put out a statement and leave Kevin McCarthy alone. But I think it really depends how much he angers them and how far he goes and what their eyes is caving to the Democratic demands here.
And Justin Wolfers, when you look at the proposal, again, we don't have all the details, so it's hard to completely analyze. Uh, but the basic things in there, capping spending for some time, perhaps some work requirements. Is there anything in there that you think would have either a beneficial or a detrimental impact on the United States economy, or is it kind of a status quo thing? Well, I think what's difficult here is uh, some, almost all of this is ideological. Um, the, the favorite example I give is um, the work requirements. The claim is that that would lead more people to work. The evidence is they do no such thing. They just boot people off of benefits. The other that I find just absolutely astonishing is the move to cut $10 billion of funding from the IRS. All of the estimates are it would help them catch more tax cheats and bring in billions and billions more in revenue. So this isn't saving the government money. It's saving tax cheats from their burden. Mr. Wolfers, thank you. Melanie Zanona as well. Congressman Walsh and Congressman Rose are going to stay with us. Ron DeSantis is going after Donald Trump as he never has before. But can he walk the fine line, attacking Trump without alienating Trump voters? Ron DeSantis making a big change as he gets his White House run in full gear. Florida governor suddenly not shy about taking on the former president, Donald Trump. But can he do that without angering the Republican base? Back with me, the former Republican Congressman Joe Walsh, former Democratic Congressman Max Rose, and joining us now, Molly Ball, national political correspondent for Time Magazine, and Ron Brownstein, CNN senior political analyst. Thanks, everybody, for being here. Let's just listen to it, because up until his official announcement, DeSantis sometimes some implied criticism of Trump, but it was very gentle, very new in just the past 48 hours. Listen here. Wow. I think he did great for three years, but when he turned the country over to Fauci in March of 2020, that destroyed millions of people's lives. When people look back, you know, that 2020 year uh, was yeah. not a good year for the country as a whole. He said he was going to eliminate the national debt when he ran in 2016. He ended up adding almost $8 trillion to the debt in four years. And he is going left on a lot of the fiscal. He's going left on culture. He's even sided with Disney against me. This is a different guy than 2015, 2016. He attacked me for opposing an amnesty bill in the Congress. He did support this amnesty, this good lot too. Two million illegal aliens he wanted to amnesty. I opposed it because that's what America first principles dictate, that you're opposed to amnesty. Molly Ball, you listen to that. You see a politician clearly on policy after policy after policy after policy trying to get to what we used to call the right of Donald Trump. I guess the question is, does that ideological Republican Party, is it still organized that way or is it Trump's party and you can't criticize him? Well, I think on the one hand, look, I remember I'm having flashbacks to 2015 when we heard from, you know, Ted Cruz and Jeb Bush and so many others, Trump is not a real conservative. And to the base voters of the Republican Party, they either didn't buy it uh, or they didn't care. On the other hand, I think it's worth listening to what DeSantis is saying because it's really interesting. What he's saying is, yeah, like you, I always liked Trump. And then he changed. So what he's saying is the Trump who's running now is not the same guy that he supported, you know, back in 2016 or even in 2020, that, that he, he moved to the left, that he betrayed the principles that so many Republican voters thought they were getting. And that's an interesting argument, right? Because we've seen that slight fall off on, uh, in, in support for Trump, even among the Republican base. DeSantis is trying to speak to those voters to say, I, like you, did like this guy at one point, uh, but then I drifted away from him as, as, as he moved in a different direction.
And Ron Brownstein, let's add one to it. He says they're soft on COVID, soft on spending, soft on the border. That's what Ron DeSantis says of Donald Trump. He also remembered the signature criminal justice reform uh, legislation in the Trump administration, a big bipartisan achievement. Ron DeSantis says, no, actually, Donald Trump is soft on crime. And soft on abortion, right? Uh, All seen is, um, you know, under the Trump administration, uh, you know, he enacted a a bill, uh, basically a jailbreak bill. It's called the First Step Act. It has allowed dangerous people out of prison who have now reoffended and really, really hurt a number of people. So one of the things I would want to do as president is go to Congress and seek the repeal of the First Step Act. If you are in jail, you should serve your time. Ron, what do you see here in the sense clearly trying to get to Trump's right? I guess the question is the math, yeah. right? How, how many, what percentage of yeah. Republicans are locked in on Trump no matter what? Uh, and is there enough room for Ron DeSantis to pull this off? Yeah, there's a big gamble here, John, because, I mean, the, the, the question is whether Ron DeSantis has better odds of convincing the Republican base that Donald Trump is insufficiently conservative or that he's insufficiently electable. Because the two goals, I think, are in conflict. The way that he is going at him ideologically, as you point out, is constantly trying to get to his right. I mean, you, you can think of Donald Trump as this kind of Mack truck rolling down the right lane of the Republican freeway. And with all these lanes to his left and center, DeSantis is trying to pass him in the shoulder, you know, the six inches of the shoulder on the right. The problem with that is that the better argument, even in a Republican primary, may be that Donald Trump can promise you all these things, but he can't deliver them because he can't win again. And by choosing to define himself to the right of Trump, you already see DeSantis alienating some donors and strategists who thought that he was potentially more electable than Trump. I mean, it kind of undermines the second argument. If you're if you're painting yourself into this corner on all of these issues, can you then turn around and make the case that I am, in fact, a better vehicle to win back the suburbs of Philadelphia and Detroit and Milwaukee and Atlanta than Trump is? So ultimately, I think DeSantis has to choose one argument or the other, because the way he's pursuing the first, I think, undermines the second. Uh, Max Rose, jump in on that point as the Democrat in the conversation. Uh, I've received had several conversations, text messages from Democrats who say, really, the Republicans are going to debate abortion and covid restrictions uh, for the next six months. Thank you very much. Well, first of all, look, Ron DeSantis has been so socially inept uh, for the last three or four months that if he merely acts like he's a human being on the campaign trail, the media uh, applauds him as beating expectations. There is one thing that he is getting correct here, and that is, I believe, that the Republican base sincerely does want a fighter. Um, or someone that they perceive as even a reckless fighter against norms, culture, the establishment, so on and so forth. Hell, they want someone who's going to fight the military and uh, he believes fight Mickey Mouse as well. But nonetheless, though, I think that there is something that he is getting absolutely wrong here. And that is that the person who wins the primary has to win the general. And the, the positions that he is taking here, even if he ever did win the primary, and I still think that's a long shot, no one wants someone who is going to talk rec- in this reckless fashion, openly applauding the deaths of hundreds of thousands, openly talking about how are they going to divide us rather than unite us, and openly talking about how they are going to wage war 
on millions of women's right to make their own healthcare decisions. This is a losing campaign before our very eyes, and I think you're going to see him flail as time goes on. Uh, Congressman Walsh, uh, you know Ron DeSantis from when he served in the House. As you watch this strategy play out, uh, he's taking a two-by-four to Donald Trump, who to many Republican base voters, he's still their hero, whether we agree or disagree on the facts of election denial or some of the policies or anything. But listen here, he's also giving a little, little bit of candy, sounding very much like Trump when it comes to criticizing the FBI and talking about possible pardons for January 6th offenders. Listen. Do you think the January 6th defendants deserve to have their cases examined by a Republican president? And if Trump, let's say, gets charged with federal offenses and you are the president of the United States, would you look at potentially pardoning Trump himself based on the evidence that might emerge of those charges? The DOJ and FBI have been weaponized. And so what I'm going to do is I'm going to do on day one, um, I will have uh, folks that will get together and look at all these cases who people are victims of weaponization or political targeting, and we will be aggressive at issuing pardons. Do you see that strategy, Congressman Walsh, as feasible? Can you beat Trump up, essentially say, I'm better than the original? Oh, John, God, no. God, no. First of all, because Max is right, uh, DeSantis has zero personality, charisma. Say what you want about Trump, but he's got personality. And that's the thing, John. Republican base voters love Donald Trump. It's got nothing to do with policy. It's not policy based. You can't attack Trump on policy. It's all personality. He's the victim. He's the bully. DeSantis can never outdo that. And and John DeSantis is trapped. Uh, Ron DeSantis cannot say that the 2020 election was not stolen. He can never say that or he's done. And when Donald Trump is indicted again, Ron DeSantis is going to have to say witch hunt or something like that, or he's done. But he can never yell witch hunt as loud as Donald Trump in. It's almost an impossible road. Congressman Congressman Rose, go ahead, Ron, quickly. Go ahead. Real quick. You know, Trump is not exactly the same figure he was in 16. Then his ideology, his support was pretty evenly distributed across the party ideologically. Today, he is much more dependent on the most conservative voters. So you just you see DeSantis, in effect, using that famous call rogue belief that you got to go after a person's, an opponent's strongest attribute. And that is what DeSantis is doing. It will either succeed or prove a brick wall for him. Oh, that's what makes it fascinating as we go forward. Congressman Walsh and Congressman Rose, appreciate your time tonight. They're going to leave us. Molly and Ron are going to stay with us for another conversation. This one, simmering tensions between top Texas Republicans erupting now into articles of impeachment for a big Trump ally. Stay with us. The Republican Attorney General of Texas, Ken Paxton, facing the possibility now of impeachment. A Texas House committee voted unanimously yesterday to recommend articles of impeachment against Paxton, including accusations of bribery, obstruction of justice, and dereliction of duty. Paxton calls the investigation, helmed by fellow Republicans, illegal. The chamber, the full House chamber, is scheduled to vote tomorrow afternoon. And if it impeaches Paxton, then it moves on to the Senate for trial. CNN's Ed Lavender with more. One of the most controversial politicians in Texas is facing impeachment. This shameful process was curated from the start as an act of political retribution. 
Republican Ken Paxton has been the state's attorney general since 2014, but a Texas House committee led by fellow Republicans is accusing Paxton of a litany of criminal acts, including bribery, obstruction of justice, dereliction of duty, 20 articles of impeachment in all filed against him. The charges brought by the Texas House General Investigating Committee detail alleged violations by the AG and a request for more than $3 million of public money to pay a legal settlement to whistleblowers who worked as top deputies in the AG's office. They revolted against Paxton in 2020. There are also bribery charges with a top campaign donor that involved an alleged affair. In a statement, Paxton says the allegations are politically motivated and based on, quote, hearsay and gossip, and also added that corrupted politicians in the Texas House are actively destroying Texas's position as the most powerful backstop against the Biden agenda in the entire country. Every politician who supports this deceitful impeachment attempt will inflict lasting damage on the credibility of the Texas House. Paxton has been under indictment for felony securities violations since taking office. He's also under FBI investigation for his actions connected to the articles of impeachment. Paxton has denied all wrongdoing and Texas voters have re-elected him as attorney general twice. And along the way, he's garnered the support of a major ally. He loves this state and he loves this country. Attorney General Ken Paxton. And taking a page out of the Trump playbook, Paxton blames the looming impeachment fight on liberal factions in the Texas Republican Party. One Texas state representative predicts Paxton will be impeached by the Texas House, but is calling on the Texas Senate to refuse to hold an impeachment trial. No one has any evidence that he did anything wrong. It's all allegations. It's all allegations. And so, yeah, it's, this, is, this is just, this is political retribution is all it is. This is a complete sham. If the impeachment passes in the Texas House with a majority vote, it moves on to the Senate, where the Attorney General's wife, State Senator Angela Paxton, could be among those voting on his potential impeachment. Ken Paxton is urging friends and supporters to come peacefully rally on his behalf at the Texas Capitol on Saturday when Texas lawmakers will vote on the articles of impeachment. And this is significant because it echoes what Donald Trump did with his supporters on January 6th. And we must point out that Ken Paxton was on that same stage with Donald Trump on that day. John? He was indeed. Ed Lavendera, thanks so much. Back with me now, Molly Ball and Ron Brownstein. Uh, Molly, I was listening to some of the testimony in the impeachment committee. Some of these allegations go back to the very beginning of his tenure, back to 2014 and 2015. Uh, there's been a stench, clouds of smoke anyway, around Ken Paxton for a long time. Why now? Uh, well, he essentially asked the legislature to participate in a cover-up. Uh, as Ed was saying, you know, there was a request for this 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 fine that had been levied against him, more than $3 million, to settle the claims of the whistleblowers, Republican staffers who worked in his office. Uh, and they were, and, and so he asked the legislature to, to pay that money for him. And so they started investigating him on that basis. But as you mentioned, you know, this is someone who's been under indictment for nearly eight years. You know, where is the judicial system? Where is the FBI? Is it any wonder uh, that people have qualms about the rule of law in this country? I mean, here's someone who basically you know, epitomizes Trump's attitude that if you make the law, you know, they can't touch you and you get to make the rules. Uh, but there is a higher authority than the attorney general of Texas. And it looks like it may finally be time to pay the piper.
uh, it looks like at least we get the vote in the House and we see. Uh, Ron Brownstein, what is the significance outside the borders of Texas? Uh, Paxton has been one of the Republican attorneys general sure. uh, who have gone to court repeatedly uh, to challenge just about everything the Biden administration does. And often Texas takes the lead so they can try to find, they think they can find more favorable federal judges in the state of Texas. Would he just be replaced by another Republican? Does that matter? Is this just about him or does it have bigger meaning? Well, let's break it out from outside of Texas and inside of Texas. Outside of Texas, his significance is exactly what you say. Republican state attorneys general have repeatedly sued the Biden administration trying to preserve Trump era policies or block policies that Biden wants to pursue, particularly on immigration uh, and uh, the environment, but also on uh, the Mifepristone case. And very often, Texas is the lead plaintiff because that way they can find Trump appointed district or uh, other conservative district judges in Texas and then have a pipeline for the case to go through the Fifth Circuit uh, Court of Appeals, which is uh, perhaps the most conservative uh, in the country. And this is something that Republicans have used over and over again. So Paxton has made himself into a hero uh, for you know the MAGA base in many ways by positioning himself as kind of the tip of the spear in the legal efforts to stop uh, Biden. Inside of Texas, it's fascinating because, you know, the, there is a divide between the Texas State Senate and the Texas State House. The State House has generally been considered more pragmatic, somewhat more centrist, although, you know, still under Republican leadership than the Texas State Senate, which is led by the Lieutenant Governor Dan Patrick, who was kind of Trump before Trump. Um, and so the, 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 the intra, intramural uh, struggle uh, is reflected in this, that it's the House pursuing it, unclear whether the Senate will follow up. It is remarkable, though, for this to be coming up at the end of a session, which has probably been the most conservative in Texas history, which is saying something, not only a raft of social, socially conservative uh, legislation, but also unprecedented measures being passed in both chambers to strip authority from the increasingly democratic leaning large cities and counties in the state, including giving the state authority to overturn elections just in Harris County, which is Houston. And so for this to come, this kind of intramural fighting in the Republican Party to come out at the end of a session that has been so ideologically aggressive is still somewhat remarkable. And Molly Rotten calls it intramural fighting, and that it is. It also has a reality TV flavor to it, and Paxton using what we call now the Trump playbook. I don't know if that's mm -hmm. correct or fair, fair or not in the case, but but he says, you know, there are, this is led by Republicans, so he calls them essentially rhinos, is Trump's word, Republican name only. He calls them liberals, but he's gone even beyond that. He's not just saying, I didn't do these things. He's trying to attack the investigators, if you will. He, he sent a letter uh, about the based on a review of Speaker Dade Phelan's presiding over the House of Representatives in an obviously intoxicated state, I'm calling upon the committee to open an investigation into the Speaker for violation of House rules, state laws, conduct unbecoming his position. That we have seen in Washington. I, you know, attack the attackers, attack the investigators. Does it work in Texas? Uh, well, we'll see. It doesn't seem to have worked in this case because that statement was issued right before uh, they announced uh, all of the articles of impeachment. So clearly it was some sort of attempt to, to head this off or, as you say, to attack the attackers. Uh, but look, this is Republicans policing their own. It is very hard for him to argue that this is somehow partisan. Again, this whistleblower complaint started with loyal Republican staffers in his own office who became alarmed about his behavior, about the way that he was using the office allegedly to... 
to, to cover up for, for his friends and do his friends' bidding and help them. Uh, so, you know, it is between, this is all between Republicans. There are, to, to talk about a liberal faction in the Texas state legislature, you know, the, it doesn't really exist. So, uh, you know, he, he's clearly trying everything he can and he will have the opportunity to make his case in these proceedings. But this has been coming for a very long time. Uh, yes, it has. And now the moment of truth is here. I just want to put on the record the reaction from the Texas House Speaker uh, to that. Uh, his communications director saying Mr. Paxson's statement today amounts to a little more than a last-ditch effort to save face. Again, we'll continue to track this impeachment case. Molly Ball, Ron Brownstein, great to see you both. Have a great weekend. And if you're making plans to head to the beach the weekend yourself, please stick around. Jeff Corwin here with us to tell us about the dangers in the water and what to do if you encounter them. That's next. As beachgoers prepare for the holiday weekend, officials are warning people, be mindful, be mindful of possibly, possibility of sharks in the water. This comes after reports of several unprovoked attacks over just the last several weeks. The latest incident in Turks and Caicos. We should note, the experts say, and the numbers show, shark attacks are extremely, extremely rare, but they do happen. I thought it was just a crab, like, pinching my foot, but my it felt bigger than that i realized and my whole foot was like in its mouth and um i was shaking my foot as hard as i could it was hard it was like really heavy wildlife biologist jeff corwin host of wildlife nation is here with us jeff these recent encounters they're worrying to beachgoers context it's rare it's rare but still it's alarming is it safe to go to the beach Good evening, John. And yes, context is so important. It is safe to go on the beach. Uh, you know, here in Ma Massachusetts, where I live, where you're from, you have a better chance of winning megabucks a couple of times than actually being attacked by a shark. But with that said, we are noticing an increase in some of these negative encounters between human beings and sharks, particularly in places like Florida, the American South, and places like New England, because here, Unlike other parts of the world where shark populations are crashing, our shark populations are growing. Uh, they are growing. I was up at the Cape last year and I saw several myself watching them come up. So there's actually, you get advice from the experts because if a shark gets near you, maintain eye contact with the shark, slowly move away, exit the water. If a shark tries to bite you, hit the eyes and the gills, hit the snout and push away. Um, Okay, I can read that advice. I'm not so sure if attack approach, a shark approached me in the water, I would have the wisdom and the grace and the patience and the calmness uh, to remember it. Uh, but what would Jeff Corwin do? Yeah, good luck with that. That's, that's how I kind of look at that. You know, my technique is, you know, if I'm going in the water with John King, I don't need to outswim that shark. I just need to outswim John King, right? But seriously, uh, when you're in the water with sharks, you need to remember, as you touched on earlier, um, in a healthy marine environment, like here along uh, uh, Plymouth and, and Cape where I live, we have lots of sharks. You're often never more than 300 feet away from a living shark. Sharks are integral to ecosystems. They are the pinnacle predators. They're the sign of a healthy ecosystem. With that said, you don't want to be at the wrong side of a shark. So the best way to avoid injury is just avoiding those situations where negative encounters could happen, like going in the water at at low light levels, during dawn or dusk, after rainstorms, during the breeding seasons, if there's a big predator-prey event. John, you're talking about Cape Cod. 
I scuba dive just about every day in the summertime when I'm home. There are places I would not scuba dive, especially where we get big clusters or groups of gray seals and harbor seals. The reason why our great white shark population is growing is because their buffet is all you can eat. All right, you see the seals every time you're up there, and great. I want to move on to another issue that you're incredibly passionate about, which is the North Atlantic right whale. Uh, you say we are at this now or never moment in trying to save this species. Tell us what you mean. Absolutely, John. It, it, it's, it's so serious right now. The North Atlantic right whale, its population, this species, has begun to collapse. Um, this year, we only had 11 surviving offspring. It should be triple that. So there's a group right now, it's called IFA, the International Fund for Animal Welfare. They have a research vessel, vessel called Song of the Whale. They also, not far from here, they have the Marine Mammal Rescue Center. Them, along with the team from NOAA and all these other research and conservationists, have discovered that this species is about to disappear. Why? Well, they migrate up, John, from Florida up into Canada waters. They do that. Um, they come up here to feed, and as they're migrating their way up, they give birth, they reproduce in Florida, they come and feed in places like Nova Scotia off of Stellwagen Bank. They're getting hit by container ships when they migrate into uh, shipping lanes. They're also getting entangled in fishing gear. So you're looking at footage right now. This is a whale that's actually entangled up in ghost net and fishing gear. And it takes Herculean efforts. It's actually very dangerous to try to free these entangled whales. But when you're so endangered, when you're so close to disappearing, every one of these whales matters. Another challenge they're facing, John, is when they go to Canada and when they head up to Maine, the, the Bay of Maine, is the fastest warming body of water on the planet. So that means they come here to eat and they have to work so much hotter to fill their bellies. So you add up the climate change, the entanglements with nets and the shipping lanes, this creature is in a world of hurt, but it's not too late. If we were to act now and really focus, we have a very good chance of saving this remarkable species. What are the two or three most important things to do now? So the most important things we can do is make sure we, we're getting those ghost nets out of the water. We work with our friends in the fishing community. You know, I'm a, I actually commercial fish in the summer myself, but uh, you know, the, the fishing community, they are our allies and they're our partners to this success. For, for example, we now have these incredible state-of-the-art technology lobster traps that actually deploy the buoys um, when they're ready to be collected versus just hanging in the water, potentially entangling whales. We have this incredible technology. We need to watch where these vessels are going so they're not hitting whales. In parts of the country, like in the south, boaters, both recreational and commercial, need to slow down. If we give these creatures some space, they will survive. But this is our last chance. And in the end, we will all pay the price if the, the incredible, majestic North Atlantic right whale becomes extinct. Amen to that point. Jeff Coring, thank you for your time. Important insights. Appreciate it. Thank, thank you. Thank you, John. Imagine you're on a plane, 700 feet in the air, when suddenly the exit door opens. Well, that happened on one flight. And we've got the video. That's next.
Fasten Your Seatbelt. Video tonight from an almost unthinkable midair moment aboard a South Korean jet when a man allegedly, get this, opens the cabin door in midair. CNN's Tom Foreman has more. Wind howling through the cabin, 200 people on board, passengers gripping their armrests. These were the chaotic minutes before landing for that Asiana Airlines flight in South Korea. Officials say the plane was still 700 feet in the air, traveling around 170 miles an hour when a man in his 30s grabbed an exit door. Maybe the man tried to get off the plane. A flight attendant said, help, help, and about 10 passengers stood up and pulled him in. Opening a commercial jet door in flight is supposed to be impossible. The doors are locked and beveled so that air pressure inside the plane pushes them firmly into the door opening. Aviation experts say overcoming that pressure would be like lifting a car. So at altitude, you, you simply can't do it. There are thousands of pounds of pressure on those doors. You cannot open them. You can't open the overwing exits. But at very low altitudes on some older planes, experts say it might be possible. What we know for sure is the man on the Asiana flight was arrested and others have tried the same thing. Taking over this plane. On a flight from L.A. to Boston in March, authorities say a passenger was restrained after he attacked a crew member, tried to open the emergency exit door and said he believed the flight attendant was trying to kill him. Soon afterward, a court ordered him to undergo a mental health evaluation. Where's the Homeland Security with the gun? Because I'm waiting for them to point the gun at me. I will kill every man on this plane. Other incidents have raised similar concerns in the air, including a woman who tried to open a door while flying from Raleigh, North Carolina. The captain is and on the ground. In Los Angeles, authorities say a man opened the door of a parked jet and jumped onto an exit slide. In Chicago, officials say a man popped an emergency door while his plane taxied and walked onto the wing. And in New York, officials say a couple with their dog opened a door and took an exit slide as their plane was preparing to leave. Why the man in the Asiana incident allegedly tried to open that plane, we don't know. Authorities are merely saying he was not in a good mental state. And by the time it was all over, some other passengers weren't either. They were taken to the hospital for hyperventilating. John? But somehow, no one seriously injured. That's a miracle. Tom, thank you, and thank you for watching tonight. Have a great weekend. Our coverage continues. Now streaming exclusively on Max, a new CNN flash talk about the album that has Nashville talking, Call Me Country, Beyonce and Nashville's Renaissance. Watch it at max.com slash callmecountry. Max subscription required.